Welcome to the RTW Podcast. I'm Josh Baldwin, Managing Director of Communications at RTW. And for this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Josh Kennedy-Smith, Managing Director, Research Analyst at RTW. And we'll be speaking with Mark McKenna, Chairman and CEO of Prometheus Biosciences. In this conversation, we'll explore Mark's background and the story of Prometheus, its recent acquisition by Mark, and the relationship between a CEO and investor. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome. Thank you, Mark, for being here. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Josh, thank you for co-hosting with me generously. So we've got, we've got a bunch of things uh, that I'd love to talk to you about. I think maybe we start out with your career, get a little bit of your background and, and sort of understand how you came to be where you are. Yeah, sure. Again, thanks for hosting. Uh, Josh, great to be with you again. So again, Mark McKenna, Chairman and CEO uh, Prometheus. I spent the better part of uh, 20 years um, in healthcare and uh, started with Johnson & Johnson in the, the device world. Worked at Bausch & Lomb for over a decade. My last position there was running the U.S. Uh, franchise. Uh, and then had a unique opportunity to pivot over to pharma, where I ran a company called Salix Pharmaceuticals. And then uh, if that wasn't enough transition and change from you know consumer health device to pharma, I got a phone call from a guy named Tachi Yamada, who uh, passed away a few years ago, who was a friend and mentor. And he said, hey, I want you to take a look at this platform and this early technology out of Cedar sinai and my first instinct was, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a preclinical guy. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I'm running a $2 billion business, you know, I had other aspirations, but the more and more work I did on this, the more and more conviction I had. And not only did I want to actually invest in this personally, but invest my time. And, uh, yes, we burned the boats and moved to, moved to wow. San Diego for what was a pretty remarkable journey, but pretty humble beginnings that I'm sure we'll get into today. Yeah. So what, what was that? transition like talk a little bit about sort of going from the big pharma you know big company lots of resources to a startup essentially i I think you know if you were to ask a lot of people that i work with i think that the the hallmark of my career has been able to you know learning agility and just you know asking questions to better you know understand putting yourself out there you know that's when you grow and learn the most and uh you know having having had the experience going from consumer health to device to pharma like I had a really good backbone around how the business operates. There's some nuance to, you know, pharma that's different than device, but, you know, some of the business principles are the same. You know, preclinical is very technical. And I knew that if I was going to be talking to investors, I had to know it as well as my scientist. Mm-hmm. And so, the, you know, job one is you know, getting up to speed and understanding all the nuance that goes into the business from, you know, the assays that are needed to submit for your approval with the FDA to the clinical strategy. And even if you don't have every element of it covered, you know the right questions to ask to get to the, to, to the most important aspects of it. So look, I, I think that um, this was an incredible opportunity that I just kind of felt that, you know, a lot of patients could benefit from this, from this technology. IBD is a heterogeneous disease, mm-hmm. 5 million people globally. And unfortunately, a lot of patients are getting suboptimal care today. And we believed at Prometheus that this was the best hope for those patients. And so it was partly with that conviction of like, you know, addressing that unmet need. And then secondly, the business opportunity of really creating substantial shareholder value. When I first got there in mid-2019, it was a $50 million company. That was the valuation. And there was a lot of other nuance uh, to the business with regard to a, it had a diagnostic business, a right. commercial stage, 
LDT commercial business. And then it had this, you know, great technology on the therapeutic side with a novel target and data uh, that would allow us to build out a portfolio of programs throughout, you know, INI. But the early days were pretty challenging. You know, when I first got there, we, you know, we thought there was about 18 months worth of capital. It turned out there's about seven or eight. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember going into my CFO's office at the time and saying to her, you know, what happens if we can't raise the funds? Yeah. Like, it, it may seem like self-evident now, but in the moment it was like, okay, what are, what are the options? And, uh, and she was very matter of fact, she's like, well, we'll just for, file this, you know, bankruptcy form. Oh, wow. Um, you know, we'll start laying people off. We'll shut it down. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I was like, that is not a good option. Let's, let's, what does talk option B? Yeah. What does plan B look like? And look, there's a lot of amazing things to the science here. The business model needed some work. And one of the things that was a challenge is that we didn't have any like professional investors. It was a Cedar sinai spin out. Right. And so it took some time for folks to understand the opportunity. You know, what is the right business model? You know, given that we had the diagnostic side and the therapeutic side, we get greater clarity as we as we advanced. And you know, Cedar Sinai was this is a unique bet for them. It obviously paid off in a big way. You know, one point three billion dollars. But you know, they had to double down. And uh, you know, I remember driving up to Los Angeles and having dinner with their CFO and saying, "Look, here's what I think we can do. I'm more convinced of it than ever before. But you know, we need more time to be able to advance the science." advance the programs and uh, attract the right investors. Yeah. We had we had at the time uh, term sheets from other other investors. They just weren't attractive. And we were on the cusp of a couple of different milestones that were forthcoming that would provide greater clarity to the business model as well as, you know, de-risk the program a bit. And so that was the journey. And up until that point, um, it was, you know, call it 24 people on the therapeutic side all punching above their weight, wow. rolling up sleeves and, you know, believing in the greater good that we could we could create here. And then a few investors saw the opportunity of what we were building. So can you talk talk a little bit about that? Because I'm, I'm curious about, so you're going from big pharma device, big companies where you were not involved, I imagine, in investor communications or raising money in any way. And Getting in and that being a big part of the job, I would imagine. What was that like? Yeah, I had pretty good visibility and exposure to the IR side. I ran the biggest business at Bausch Health and Salix. It was a $2 billion franchise. So I spoke at various debt conferences. I interacted with investors there, but it's a different phenotype than the biotech investor. And in terms of raising capital, no, this was the first time I had an opportunity to, to, to do that. Or And it was much more challenging than I thought, partly because of COVID, partly because of um, the fact that the business model wasn't ready. And it took the right investor to see the opportunity um, to really maximize this. And you know, with any novel science, there is inherent risk. It's very easy to make a bet on the fifth, you know, MOA. You know, the, the upside's not as high. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's where you got to combine, you know, from on the other side of the table, the investor has got to have the right science and they have to have the right understanding of, you know, what's going to take to make this commercially viable. And I think that that's where I see a big difference in the market with a lot of investors is that some of them really are, you know, methodical and really deep on the, on the science, but they miss out on like, you know, what could be. And then what limitations are you going to face as you go to try and get reimbursement? Um, so putting the pieces of the puzzle together, I think is really important. You can't just do one. And the other thing I would say is that over and over again, what I've heard from investors is, is that 
the value that we place on the team has exponentially gone up based upon your story and other stories, based upon the fact that, you know, great science only comes to light, you know, with the right people executing against it. And so I think that um, you got to have confidence in, in the people that you're investing in. And so it's the science, it's the business model, and it's the team. Yeah. So maybe this is a good opportunity to get Josh in here. Um, Josh, can you talk a little bit about sort of the early days of how did this come across your plate, um, the, the opportunity with Prometheus, and what was that sort of exploration like? What were you looking for? What did you see? Yeah, it's funny. I, I went back in my notes today and I, I looked up the date of our first meeting. It was May 12th, 2020. Wow. So it was in the dead of like that first kind of wave of COVID yeah. where everyone was still pretty probably in shock. And so, I, I you know, I just want to tell one anecdote, <laughs> uh, which is uh, one that always sticks with me is at that point in time, we had a, a six-month-old, essentially, and we were fighting our way through this by ourselves as two parents. I was pretty disheveled and, like, <laughs> I, you know, I'd wake up. i just basically, like, put on some pajamas and sit down, and I would work at a laptop that was basically set up on a card table. And so I get this introduction. I'm like, okay, I'm going to meet uh, with Prometheus and you, you get a little bit of background on the story, but you don't really know what you're getting into. And along comes Mark onto the screen. I was like, wow, this dude is really put together. Like, <laughs> he looks great. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, I'm like embarrassed. <laughs> I have like a, you know, like a castaway beard and like, I haven't had a haircut in months. Like, but no, in all seriousness, I think, you know, the, the first impressions of the company really were they were able to tell a very kind of um, or even not even tell, but like ask a provocative question, which is in IBD. Like, how are we going to make a, a step change, some kind of quantum leap? And, and Mark, like in looking at my notes, that the story that they were telling is ultimately what was delivered. Right. Mm -hmm. Three years later. And so there's obviously a lot that happened in between there. But I think where we started was was just basically saying Here's, uh, you know, some science that is uh, interesting. The thesis that they have, which kind of became our thesis as well, was one again. They, it was this question they were asking, like, how do we, you know, how do we improve things way beyond where standard of care is? And and so when you're interacting with teams and they're telling you that and they're just saying that, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But there was like a roadmap that was kind of painted for us that says. Here's a target where there is some clinical validation. And then behind that, there's all this genetic evidence. And so as Mark was kind of alluding to, there was multiple parts to the business. And so it became super interesting in that respect because it was it was something that looked and felt different at the time. It was something that you weren't used to seeing when you, mm -hmm. you were approached by an immunology company or you were pitched an immunology company. It, it, it just it felt different. And that, that's the one thing that going from, from that time point in May until we, we closed the crossover later in the fall, where you were able to kind of hold on to that and work down that path of saying, like, like I know that there's something special here and I just have to go and do the work now to unpack all of it so that mm -hmm. we can get more confident and we can believe, that, again, in the story that they're telling and that they're going to be able to execute on it. Yeah. So, so you mentioned we came in at the crossover round and we invested again at the IPO and then there was a big phase two data readout late last year. All opportunities where we could have gotten out, we could have made a 
good deal of money and been out. Looking back, it's obvious why we did that. It was a great move. But at the time, <laughs> there's there's probably that question that comes up. And I'm sure a lot of other investors would have maybe taken that guaranteed check and said well, goodbye. Some did. And, yeah. and I think Mark can probably speak to this better than I can. Like this story uh, is not a perfect one, right? So it wasn't, uh, even though if you like reflect on it, you look at like the, the stock chart, it almost looks like it's a straight line up. Um, but there were points uh, even last year where uh, things got choppy and that's not, that wasn't their fault. That was the market. And then it was Pfizer. There were so many people that were kind of paying attention to the Prometheus story. But to do that, you had to pay attention to the landscape. And right. we had this competitor that was out there talking about the program and that benefited them immensely. But it also probably the greatest pain that we all saw as investors was a moment in time kind of in the early part of 2022 where people were just unsure if if all of the commentary that was being made by the senior management at Pfizer was aligning with what some of the less senior people were saying. <laughs> And it, there were points of time where it was a little scarier. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I think that every firm has their own risk tolerance. And I think that one of the biggest challenges you know, to this story is that, you know, the stock was moving in the right direction, to your point. The, yeah. There was gains to be had. And depending on macro factors of the funds and the market, um, certain investors had to make certain decisions. I think that you know, Josh didn't stay with us blindly. It, it was a, you know, a thoughtful decision with him and Rod and others in the team that said, look, they've outlined a playbook, they've executed against that playbook, and the science continues to deliver. And I think one of the hardest things um, in this space is finding um, companies like this that are novel, that have, you know, opportunity to be 10 billion or more. There's just not a ton of them out there. And so, yes, you can go take, you know, you know, a... 5x return on your investment pretty quickly um, following the IPO. But the other aspect is, is RTW was really helpful in help with the strategy to the extent that you can do that as a public company. You know, have you thought about this or that? You know, have you seen what this other company is doing here? You know, how are you thinking about setting expectations with investors? All, all these type of things. I mean, that's what you're looking for. There's plenty of capital out there. Yeah. What, what's different, though, that I saw with our relationship is, one, the early bet, um, both RTW and Joy Gosh saw the opportunity together. You know, we were able to um, build a really incredible syndicate that, by and large, all st stuck by us. We had incredible investors in that crossover. Cormorant, you know, 0.72, Cowan, uh, Perceptive. But it took the courage of, you know, RTW and, and one other investor to really say, hey, we're going to put pen to paper and we're going to put our necks out there and make a bet. And, you know, that was a long process to get to that point. A lot of yeah. tire kicking, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of pressure testing the, the assumptions. So I, I think just to wrap up this section, I would just say that there were many opportunities, but, you know, you got to, you know, this is about making the right bets, yeah. but they got to be informed. And, um, you know, I think that having clear communication between management and investors in an appropriate way is, is, is what, what it takes to have people stick with the story throughout the journey. Yeah. So you, you touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to dig a little bit deeper on the relationship between sort of this, the relationship between investor and CEO. You know, once you got the deal signed and we've invested, 
What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? How does that? Kick, kick your feet up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, just hang out a bit. Um, nice. No, we uh, we did 85 red eyes in four four years. Wow. And we, you know, because there was education that needed to happen in order to broaden our, our investor syndicate, you know, we were kind of like, felt like Avis, like we had to try harder. Yeah. And so we were, you know, out in front, you know, we probably did 300 different investor meetings last year. Wow. And that education, you know, people, th- those investors also looked at who was the early supporters, who put their neck on the line, what work did they do? But also it was a process where, you know, setting expectations and delivering on them and being being reasonable. You know, one of the biggest things that we kind of put our neck on the line was around our phase two t- timelines. If you ask most investors, most were kind of banking on some type of delay um, because we put some aggressive timelines out there. But, you know, internally we had confidence that we could deliver them. And it was important for our credibility with investors that we did. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that we surprised a lot of people, not only with the, the data, but also with the, the level of execution. What's that like, Josh, from your side, you know, working with a CEO and management team, you know, between rounds and... Yeah, I mean, you, you know, to Mark's point, you don't, you don't kick your feet up, you continue to work and you continue to, you know, pull on those loose threads, uh, you know, so to speak, to, to figure out what can continue to go right and what can continue to or not continue to go wrong, but what can go wrong, right? Yeah. And I think to Mark's point, I th- one of the things that we were really impressed by was that as we continued to kind of dig in, that everything that we, you know, encountered or would talk about, we could go back and we could find data that was supportive of everything. And so it helped over time. Again, you don't just build this confidence and then just say, okay, well, we invested, you know, whatever it is, $50 million. So I, I hope one day that turns into this. You're actively digesting it constantly and thinking it through and, and reworking those things, checking the math. And so, you know, I remember a lot of these early conversations, right? This is even before we, you know, close the crossover, just like, oh, I have to check this box now from the standpoint of like, they just said that they have all these backup plans for enrollment that are going to keep them on time. Like, is that real or is it BS? Mm-hmm. And we were able to, again, whether it's just talking to them, talking to KOLs, you put pen to paper and you start to work this stuff out. You do the math and you're like, oh, no, this all like makes sense. Like, this is not this is real. Um, and I believe them. Uh, and so it's it's being able to step through those things uh, again incrementally, you know, to build up the story, build up your confidence that as you're heading into these events that again, like, you know, we looked at it at first and it was like, well, Pfizer started this study like way before you guys, like that's, is it even possible to catch up? And it's like, well, this is how we're going to catch up. We're going to do it this way. We're going to do it this way. We're going to do it this way. And then you go and you check all of that. And you're like, oh, well, sounds like they actually are. And they did. One other thing I would add to this uh, discussion is that you know, there's over a thousand public biotech companies. You know, just thinking about it from a, a company's perspective, and the you know, back to your question around what is the role of you know, the dialogue between you know management and investors um, as a public company? And obviously, you're going to be presenting at you know the, the conferences, but also you know you gotta you gotta be out there and be visible and be sh- sharing the story because you're you're competing for for mindshare. And there's plenty of places for people to put money. Why are they going to put it with you, with you and your team? And so I think that was part of our strategies. One is like we had the plumbing internally to execute. We had a great team that was punching well above their weight. And uh, we're all coming largely from big pharma, people that had an entrepreneurial spirit that, you know, wanted to, you know, build their own company. So the plumbing was there to do that. And then we had a great team in IRR and 
you know, that was an area that I, you know, absolutely love is the interaction, the relationships that were built being out there. And, you know, it wasn't always pretty. There was, you know, was, you know, we got, there were a lot of white knuckle moments. What is Pfizer going to say this morning? Yeah. It can have nothing to do with what we do. It has everything to do with, you know, what's happening in the broader market and with specific companies that are competitors that impact our stock. And you know, we would game theory those things. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we, our, our internal plan was we knew we had the better mousetrap. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew we could move faster and we did. Yeah. And so one thing I wanted to ask you about, you just sort of touched on, um, is with any successful company, especially startups, there comes at least one sort of near death, uh, you know, experience. When you think about that and Prometheus, what, what comes to mind? Was there like one big thing or is it more a series of? Yeah, I, I think that it was, um, this is a tale of two stories. The first two years and the second two years, right? The first two years is all about, you know, early science fundraising. The second part of the story was around, you know, execution and M&A strategy. You know, the second half of the story being much more fun. Than yeah. the first <laughs> um, look, there was a, a lot of white knuckle moments as we were thinking about, you know, this whole question around solvency and like how much money yeah. do we have to, to actually execute against it? You got to prioritize and making the various decisions. I'll tell you one story. Before we did the crossover, um, we did a, a, a deal with a European company um, on our second program. It was a collaboration. We gave up European rights on that second program. What most people don't know is that that was life or death. That capital that we raised, um, not only did it sustain us for a, a number of, of quarters, but it actually was the validation that helped us cl- get the crossover done. Wow. Uh, even if it was, you know, it wasn't a major multinational, it was still a third party in the, that was an expert in the GI area that said, hey, this is really interesting what they're doing. But that was life or death. And that $20 million that we raised funded the entire second program, initially funded the entire company. But oh, if you just take a step back, it funded the entire second program, which was part of the rationale why Merck was so excited about our company is that yeah. it wasn't just a one-trick pony. It was a full portfolio of assets. And so that was one of like the, the near-death experiences that you know played out well by being creative with how we outlicensed certain rights uh, while preserving you know our, all the value on our lead program. Amazing. So speaking of the second half of the story, more exciting. So it sounds like there were with the Merck deal, there were a few other players involved. What sort of going through that process, what would you say are some of the things that you did and your team did to really maximize the size of the deal, the success of the deal? So there were a number of factors that, yeah. you know, led to the outcome that we got. You know, obviously great science uh, is, is the key to, to everything. Um, but behind that is, you know, creating the right backdrop to maximize shareholder value. And I think this was a, a pretty good case study when you think about, you know, where we started in you know, 50 million to 11 billion. Well, that second half of the story was all about one execution two about uh, the right strategy um, where we were painting a vision that was much grander than, you know, it wasn't about a single asset. It was about actually completely disrupting uh, and transforming a entire category. Now, did everyone get their day one? Did we have some skeptics? Absolutely. But um, how do you get to, you know, an outsized return for investors um, on an M&A transaction? Well, it's having the capital 
to proceed on your own where you don't need them. Um, so following our data, you know, we raised five hundred million dollars. Right. Um, that was that was our sign to the market that like we don't need we don't need the strategics. We're yeah. ready to go if we need to. And I think some investors were questioning that um, because of you know why are you diluting that much? You know you mm. don't need that much capital. But it was a position of strength uh, for us as we were having those negotiations. We also you know started a, a you know this is all in the public domain, so there's no. Uh, um, nothing that's not public here, but I would just say that we started a partnership process in October of uh, 22 okay. with the idea of educating um, and depending on the outcome of the data, we would know, hey, if that, that's an appropriate pathway. So as, as disclosed in our 14D9, we uh, you know, had 17 parties that were under CDA Yeah, getting educated. Um, and when we got our data... Uh, I think we got the data on Thursday or Friday. On Saturday morning, I'm calling the CEOs of these companies yeah. and heads of BD and saying, hey, you know, based upon the data, a partnership does not make sense. There's not an offer you can put on the table today that our investors would think would be a good idea yeah. and our board. Yeah. And so um, that was yet another. And by the way, we're going to raise $500 million. Um, <laughs> and so a lot of them appreciated the fact that we weren't going to force them to do diligence calls over the holidays. But also um, there's some that were pretty upset about it because they yeah. really wanted to, they were, you know, wanted in earnest to do a partnership as did we, depending on the circumstance um, and structure and economics. So following that, we, um, you know, at JP Morgan, there was obviously a lot of discussions going on at that point that were, you know, not public at the time where, you know, a lot of interest, people wanted to, you know, they knew it was a competitive process. They knew that there was a lot of interest here. There's, you know, this was the largest unencumbered asset in, in, in biotech. And it was a it was a process of, you know, playing a little hard to get, being open to a conversation, but also being confident in our path forward. The last thing I would say is like having good advisors along the table. You know, we were thinking through every detail along this, you know, what was communicated when, um, you know, we had both uh, Centerview and Goldman Sachs. Uh, Goldman Sachs uh, led our, our equity financing. Centerview was, you know, run, kind of running with the, you know, M&A strategy. And I think that... Um, with those two banks at work uh, and the relationships that quite honestly that we built over the last couple of years with these pharma partners, um, the, I think that those were very helpful in getting getting a deal done and having multiple conver- multiple bidders at the table um, because of the fact that one they were educated, two they had a direct line to me, and uh, you know in, in closing here on this topic, you know a big part of our calculation obviously is, is value. That's a, that's our job to to maximize shareholder value, but. And maybe this gets me in trouble, but like getting this drug in the right hands is really important. Going back to the whole reason why we actually came to Prometheus in the, in the beginning, which is trying to transform lives of patients. And I, I'm confident that, you know, Dean Lee and Rob Davis, um, Mike Klobuchar, that team over there is fully committed to maximizing, you know, the value for patients here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's actually bittersweet, you know, being here because there's, you know, as I look at other companies, there's just not many Prometheuses out there. And um, you know, this was truly, really special. And I think that, uh, you know, part of it was the science. Part of it is the, the amazing team that we had. And, you know, it's, uh, it's a tough hand of the baton off to, to Merck, but I think it's the, absolutely the right thing to do as we think about, you know, several hundred million dollars of investment required to get through phase three and, um, you know, all the other indications that can be explored here. And in light of IRA, you know, you need to start these programs in, in, in parallel much earlier than you did before. Yeah. Well, an amazing deal. Congrats again on, uh, on getting it done. 
with that in mind, how do you think about what's next for you? You know, um, well, what's next for me is uh, I'm taking two weeks in the Caribbean, so I leave tomorrow for that. And uh, I started off, I think I told Josh I was going to take the, the balance of the year off. Yeah. And then it, it my, my tune changed a bit and it was like, okay, I'm going to take the summer off. And so now it's going to be July. I'm holding it July. <laughs> um, but look, this, this is uh, one chapter is closed. There's other chapters of the book. And yeah. I think that uh, there's still a heck of a lot of unmet need out there. And, um, you know, in the fall, uh, there'll be more to come with what's next, but you know, where my, where my passion is, is, you know, company building, it's, yeah. you know, trying to, there's still a lot of unmet need out there. And, uh, I think that going forward, chapter two of the book would be a lot uh, easier than chapter one. You know, some of the challenges that we faced with the, you know, really early science, not being capitalized. Uh, I think that on the next project, obviously, you know, we have the team, we have, we have capital um, to, to deploy through, through our investors who are, you know, committed to helping to support us. And uh, I think there is um, also a lot of opportunity on the consolidation side, thinking about, um, you know, different biotechs that, where there's synergy, as well as, you know, mid-stage commercial companies. So I'm, I'm excited to share uh, what's next in the fall. Yeah, well, we'll be, be anticipating an announcement. One of the things that we like to ask is for an example of sort of a paradigm shifting innovation in life sciences. Is there is there anything that comes to mind for you, Mark? And then I'll ask Josh as well, like that you've seen that's a, a favorite of yours. Uh, that, that, that's 2.0. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so um, maybe just talking more generally, um, I think the biggest thematic change over the last decade has been the fact that today, as I mentioned earlier, there's over a thousand public biotech companies. If you look back 20 years, there's probably a handful of, of companies working on earlier stage science. You know, probably, what, 70% of those are working in oncology. Um, and that's going to change over time as you know immunology and cardiovascular disease become bigger. Um, but let's just say half of them are, are working in oncology. Like, you know, I think that we're going to see in our lifetime a major shift in cures and, you know, finding therapies for these chronic diseases in a way that we haven't seen before. Like this is going to be the healthcare revolution uh, in the same way that we saw the industrial revolution of the 1900s. And I think that um, this level of innovation that's happening in biotech companies today, you know, is going to do what big pharma can't do, the risks they're not willing to take. You know, that is the role of the biotech ecosystem is to be able to take these ideas and move them faster take different levels of risk than what a, a big pharma company would do and remove the bureaucracy. So I think the biggest paradigm shift is going to be just the, the market backdrop and how many companies are working on you know, new therapies and, and, and new targets that are going to change the lives of a lot of patients. Um, that wasn't happening 20 years ago to the same extent as it is happening today. So you know, I, I think for me, there's just so much um, opportunity here. There's plenty of me too and me better programs out there. The role of biotech is to advance new science. And I think that it's important that, you know, the system, the U.S. You know, reimbursement system remain open to that. Um, and they're not, you know, squashing innovation, but rather, you know, encouraging it. If you want to solve the cancer moonshot, what I'd be doing is funding as many of these, you know, early stage ideas as you possibly can, knowing that one of these ideas could, you know, be the key to unlocking you know, cures and melanoma and, you know, um, gastric cancer and other areas. Yeah. Yeah. Before I go to Josh, I want to 
double click on that just a little bit. Um, and you mentioned the IRA as sort of changing the way you you look at drug development. What other things from a policy perspective do you think about that you know would be priorities or things to to change to really power innovation, push innovation forward, and encourage it? So I think that there's a couple things that I'd point out, and I don't want to go too far down the, down the path there. It's going to get myself in trouble. Uh, but look, uh, the healthcare system is is in the U.S. is broken. Yeah. Uh, how's it broken? Well, you have um, an insurance system that you have a lot of middlemen in the process and um, that are extracting value, but not necessarily adding to it from my perspective. And, you know, you got to remove the incentives where you know, they're encouraging higher prices because they benefit from that. What a lot of people outside of our industry don't understand is that most of these drugs, you know, they set a whack price and they pay a 50 to 60% rebate below that, the net price um, back to the pharma company after R&D cost and, and manufacturing cost is kind of value-based. And of course, there are, there are the bad actors and outliers out there. But in general, uh, we need to reward innovation, not penalize it. And so I think that fundamentally that that um, that needs to you know be reflected in our policies and the, the you know we need to we need to think about how we fund earlier innovation and I think that you're seeing a lot of these ideas uh, coming out of academia and uh, we're starting to see a better bridge between the investment world and academia so that science is actually you know moving into companies and it, to the extent that it wasn't happening before um, but I think that on the the you know, just regulatory side, IRA is a challenge and it is forcing companies to make different decisions about their portfolio. Um, And it goes beyond just the surface level stuff of like small molecule versus biologic. There's significant downstream impacts that people uh, haven't fully processed yet because some of that are still unknown. But the fact of the matter is, is that you're going to see people working on treatment for younger patients. You're going to see them working on biologics. You're going to see them stacking indications earlier. And you're going to see pharma make some different decisions with regards to MA because of it. Like, I don't believe this is going to change. I think that uh, we need to learn to operate within the system. And, uh, you know, I think we need pharma and other advocacy groups to help make sure that, you know, our government officials understand, you know, there's no cancer moonshot if there's no biotech. Um, the other, the last thing I would say is that, you know, the FTC has taken a very hard line on uh, consolidation in this space. And here is another area where it's, in my opinion, very different than tech. Our ecosystem, you know, requires there to be a substantial M&A. In the absence of M&A, no one's funding these higher risk projects. And so I, I think that, um, you know, you got to bifurcate the different uh, uh, sectors and understand the dynamic that's going on here that we need consolidation here and it should be encouraged because you know a lot of these phase three programs cost a billion dollars it's just it's, it's almost impossible for a lot of these companies to raise enough money to do that so what happens well those drugs take much longer to get to market and um, don't never realize their potential for patients and so i think that you know addressing those issues would go a long way in terms of making a better experience for patients and for, you know, the, uh, the biotech ecosystem. Yeah, that's great. All right, Josh, your favorite uh, paradigm-shifting innovation in life sciences. I mean, I think the, the thing that we like to talk about here at RTW the most, right, is really just this explosion of 
of new, you know, therapeutic modalities. So I, I wouldn't necessarily talk about anything specific as much as I can point my finger to like in the time that I've been here, right? Mm -hmm. So like seven plus, almost eight years, I guess. We've seen, you know, approvals for cell therapies, for gene therapies. We have protein degraders in the clinic now. We have gene editing in the clinic now, right? And so the way that I like to think about this and talk about it really is you have to pay attention to all of this stuff, but it's in those increments, right? Of like, being here and now um, just seeing it and, and being ready to kind of pounce, that's actually what I'm most excited about. So I, I don't know if I'm actually calling out anything that's like a paradigm shift as much as like if you do the work to understand cell therapy, then maybe you're there and you're ready when it it becomes you know, prime time to use it in immunology, for instance, right? So so that's something that is coming, right? And so then similarly, you can look at a story like Prometheus and you can say, oh, it was really easy for us to get involved because having a companion diagnostic wasn't this like foreign crazy thing. It was like, what are these crazy people doing talking about how they're going to increase the, you know, the remission rate in this super hard disease with, with a, a genetic, you know, biomarker and a tool like that's crazy. That's not crazy at all because we'd yeah. seen that in oncology and we knew, uh, right. The potential, right. Of being able to use it. And so in, in many respects, it's, it's really just, being able to kind of key in on those those things that that actually are tangible from this, the standpoint of them um, uh, again having the potential for that paradigm shift that's the thing that gets me most excited is that you're actually closest to it and you can actually almost reach out and touch it you just have to know when to then kind of transact and so it's you know it actually serves as a perfect example right to 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 talk about prometheus and use it right as as the thing that actually is super exciting right we didn't even get to talk about and we were you know that's the one thing i'm sad about as mark kind of alluded to is we're not going to get to see you know the the third and the fourth and the fifth inning of prometheus because it's it's going to be kind of almost behind this curtain of Merck now that's all fine and good from from our standpoint as investors i guess <laughs> in some respects but as a scientist it's actually disappointing because we actually like one of the key catalysts that was going to be coming up for for them was actually the diagnostic uh you know cohort readout we were expecting that uh this quarter yeah. right and so as to whether or not that we ever get to actually see that we don't know um, but, but then it was going to be the second program and then they were going to, you know, yeah. they were going to unveil the, you know, the third program right at the end of the year. And so there, these are all these things that we, we kind of then as, again, as I was saying, like as scientists, we lose out on that. Yeah. Um, so there's a tough balance there. I think we're pretty happy with the result. <laughs> um, all in all, uh, when that's, all a, really, said that's done, a very interesting take though. Um, yeah. and it is, it shows that that at heart you are a scientist and and it's you know this is what gets people here excited about these things is not necessarily just you know how much did we make on this deal but watching the science progress and getting to be a part of each of those sort of steps or innings for a company yeah it'd be it would be amazing to be here for another decade and see companion diagnostics come of age, right, in immunology. Yeah. And that, again, I think about some of the early slide decks that I saw, mm. right, that Mark and the team presented. And it was like this big group of like people that were all different colors. And it was like, you know, here's subset of IBD one and mm -hmm. subset two and three and four and five and eight and 10. And we're going to be able to interrogate all of this and go after it and get it from this disease where you're only, again, putting 
10, 15% of patients into remission and getting that up to something that, that we're used to seeing in a lot of these diseases where you can actually treat like in psoriasis, you can treat all these people super well. Right. And so again, like it's, it's going to be in increments and in steps, but we'll get there. And it's just like, again, I'm in a very fortunate position to, to be in the seat and get to see this stuff and interact with people like Mark, right. Uh, on a daily basis. Um, and, and then, yeah, in, in these instances where we're fortunate enough to be able to finance these companies and work with them, right. Um, like over these periods of time, it's fantastic. And it's like, I, again, reflecting on the last three years in some respects, it feels like ages. And then in, in other ways, it just feels like literally like this blink in time. Yeah. So, you know, the, the only other theme I, I would, I would talk through is about, which was really consequential in the, the Prometheus story, which is the role of data and AI and helping to uh, unlock new opportunities uh, for science. And we were, we were Cedar Sinai, Cedar Sinai spin out. And, uh, you know, Cedar Sinai over the last two decades have built this amazing data set, you know, 20,000 patients, 200,000 samples. And only through that data set can you start to really find new and unique targets like TL1A and then be able to develop diagnostics to identify the subset of patients. But this is happening all over medicine. And, uh, you know, data, uh, along with the, the ability to interrogate it using AI in, in new ways, um, is going to also play a big role in reshaping care for patients. Um, and so I know that there's a lot of investors that are raising funds around AI, and um, I'm sure it's a decent portion of your portfolio here at, at RTW, but I think that uh, that is going to be uh, you know, critical in terms of like solving the moonshots on cancer and other areas. How do you think about that, Josh, and, and sort of the impact of AI on... I, you know, development so, or discovery. Yeah. I mean, given my background and experience and obviously having spent time at Schrodinger, which, uh, you know, can be classified, right. As a, as a AI company, um, you know, there's a spectrum with which you can do it. And I think on one hand, this goes back to kind of one of the points that Mark was making, right. That at the end of the day, you can, you can wield a sword or a tool or whatever it is. Right. But it really is the people that kind of sit behind that, um, instrument that ultimately are going to be the ones that can make sense of, the, you know, make the inference, uh, if you will, right, to wield that technology appropriately. And so Schrodinger is an example, right? It's it's very much, you know, they built this, you know, purposely built a platform that that enables uh, medicinal chemists to work more efficiently. And so uh, that was one of the reasons why I was like, oh, yeah, it's a no brainer. I want to go work there. Like they're doing cool stuff that helps me do my job better and more efficiently. That's that's smart. You can then stretch that further and you can say, oh, well, we're just going to we're going to interrogate and solve biology just by clicking buttons. Right. That's like the tech attitude towards biotech, which I think is is I don't want to say it's purely and ultimate, like 100 percent fundamentally flawed. But if you think about, you know, again, uh you know, data and having to, to truly kind of make these connections sometimes, it's not always easy and it's not always um, true that a computer is just going to be able to like see that, right? So there is a balance in there that I am a true believer in, you know, again, yeah, experienced management teams that know how to execute and right, like a computer is not going to be able to tell you like what the metrics are for, you know, IBD trials, you know, and how many patients are going to be able to enroll at the site if XYZ goes wrong or COVID right. happens. Like maybe they can, I don't know. Um, but, but <laughs> maybe it a little serves, yeah, from that. like it serves to represent <laughs> yeah. like, 
you know, kind of the experience we had here. So, uh, you know, again, maybe going back to the earlier points I made, like it, it's it's always nice to be sitting next to that and know that it's out there and and following it. I think for certain things, it's completely relevant and, you know, applicable. Schrodinger has been around for, for almost three decades, three decades plus. They know what they're doing. These other companies are younger and they're maybe over-promising and, and under-delivering. And so you never want to say no to a piece of technology. Uh, so I think you just have to pay attention to it and see, yeah. right, what the true application of it is in that moment. And then over time, it grows. Yeah. All right. Well, I, we're running up on the end of our time here, Mark. I really appreciate you being here. This was great. Good to hear more from you and and learn a bit more about your career and Prometheus. And we'll look forward to seeing what comes next for you. Yeah. No, I appreciate uh, the opportunity and uh, all the support, uh, Josh and the team here at RTW. Um, I can honestly say that without great investors, this uh, this outcome for patients uh, would not have happened. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Cool.